Turn now in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin our reading at verse 1 and read through verse 5. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 5. Let us give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, we began looking at 1 Peter, and we looked at the first two verses as sort of an introduction. And we found, I trust, uh, some important information about the author, the Apostle Peter, about the recipients of the letter. They are called elect exiles. And there is a real sense in which we all are elect exiles ourselves. We talked about that last Lord's Day. And it was sent, the letter was sent to these people who lived in what Peter called the dispersion. In the letter of James, the same letter, uh, the same term is used, dispersion. That means scattered. It was sort of a technical term. These were Hebrew Christians who had lived in the Jerusalem area and because of persecution fled Jerusalem and were scattered all across what we call Asia Minor today. Now, we can still identify with that in a sense uh, remotely because right now there's a war going on. And in that war, uh, millions of people have been forced, in their minds at least, to flee the nation of Ukraine, and they have been scattered. They're all over the place, including some here in America. And so those kinds of things still happen. Although the reason they fled was not specifically because of persecution of Christians, though it might have had some impact. But nonetheless, you and I are also scattered elect exiles. Think about how God has scattered his people everywhere. And that's a good thing. That can be a tremendous blessing. 
But the persecution that the Hebrew Christians were suffering, that Peter was writing to, is still going on today. We mentioned earlier the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. Christians are being persecuted all over the world. And if you're noting carefully and keeping up with this somewhat in the news, Christians in our own country are being increasingly rejected and mocked. People are losing their jobs over their faith because they have to decide between obedience to their boss and obedience to the Lord God. Things like that are happening. And I mentioned that this, this is an increasing thing. This is going to intensify more than likely at the way, at the rate things are going. We need to be prepared for that. And Peter is writing this letter to people in the first century encountering similar things, though more intense than we have encountered it so far. And he's telling them, here's how to be prepared. Here's how to be ready when you are suffering because of your faith. Now, if you're suffering because of some dumb decision you made, well, that's another thing. But I'm talking about suffering because you're trying to be faithful to God. And so we're looking today at verses three through five, where Peter breaks out in a burst of doxological exclamation. He's singing a doxology, as it were. He's praising God, and that's the word he uses, praise or blessed be God. And that word is the word that we get our word doxology from. It means to bring glory to God, to praise God. So I want to ask you a question as we think about this. Are there times when you don't believe that you really can praise God in your heart? If you are going through a really bad time, suffering something, and it doesn't have to be persecution. It may be some serious illness that might even claim your life or someone that you love very much is in that condition. Or you're going through a series of events that are breaking down your ability to maintain your job, your income, your life is under a strain of some sort. Can you, let me change that, are you praising God in the midst of that? You know that we need to be able to do that. And that's what Peter is doing here. If you look down at verse 6, which we'll begin looking at next Sunday, but that's where it tells us that they're undergoing persecution. <clears throat> he says in verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You know, it, it could be a, a wide variety of things that constitute trials. Every Christian encounters trials. Some of you might have just gone through a period where I'm glad that's over with, though there may be more. And then some of you are, right now you think you're sitting pretty. Well, I'm happy for you. 
But we know this is a fallen, broken down world and we are fallen, broken down people and that's not a good mix. And so we've got to be able to continue to turn to God and praise God like that bumper sticker says, praise the Lord anyhow. We've got to be able to do that. Even though we know it's that way, there are going to be times when we really struggle because maybe we're angry at God. Maybe we're so confused we think God has abandoned us. Whatever the case, the recipients of Peter's letter, in spite of everything they were encountering, had reasons to praise God. Now, <clears throat> when Peter begins talking about this, he will be dealing with this uh, all the way through verse uh, 12. And we'll be looking at that in the next couple of weeks. We're just looking at the first part. But in these verses, 3 through 12, there are several reasons why we can praise God. And the first one is what we're looking at today. We can praise God because we have the security of a new life. That's what he tells us in verses three through five. We have security, the security of a new life. God gave us life. He gave us physical life, but he has even more given us a spiritual life. We have a new life in Jesus Christ. Remember, remember Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's the same word used for the creation of the heavens and the earth. He's a new creation. God has made that person a whole new person. A new creation. But everything has become new, he says. The old has passed away and everything has become new. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 is where that's found. And Peter's talking about that right here because he says we have been born again. Born again. Many of you will think right away, oh, I remember that term because Jesus talked in Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about being born again. Remember he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, of course, was confused. <laughs> How can I be born again? I've already been born. I don't know anybody that's been born again. Not in that sense, no. He means you must be born again from within. You must have a new heart. You must have a spiritual open heart surgery where your heart has to be receiving a transplant where the old damaged heart, damaged by sin, not this actual beating heart, the heart is the, the core of our essence, our being. It's what makes us spiritual people. It's what gives us uh, desires and, and, uh, and interest in spiritual and eternal things, even if we don't know what the answers are for those. God comes along and gives us a whole new heart, takes out the old heart, and replaces it with a new heart. Ezekiel talks about that. He gives us a new heart, and so he begins transforming us from within. We now have been given the ability to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as we had no control over our first birth, we don't have control over our second birth. Jesus says, you've been born again, 
and he's, I mean, excuse me, Peter says, you've been born again. But notice the way he writes it. He, God, has caused us to be born again. You see, you don't get up one morning and say, I think I'm going to make myself be born again. Sounds silly just to say that. Just like it would sound silly to say, I think I'm going to start my life all over and be born again as a baby. Maybe I'll do a better job this time. <laughs> we can't do that. We don't have any control over our first birth, and we don't have any ultimate control over our second birth. God causes us to be born again. We talk about how we need to run to God, but we can't run to God until he first runs to us. Why? Because the Bible says we are dead spiritually. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so God makes us alive. We can't make ourselves alive. We've got to let that sink in, that we are absolutely dependent upon the mercy of God to give us new hearts where we hunger and thirst to know God and to live for God. And every Christian has had that happen to him or her. The basis of this new birth is the work of Christ. Peter mentions here, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And earlier we saw the reference to the blood of Christ in verse 2. Well, Christ is the one that brings us salvation because he pays for our sins through his death on the cross. When we talk about the blood of Christ, we're talking about him dying in the place of sinners like you and me to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can come to Jesus by faith. So I want you to get this straight because a lot of people have this confused. A lot of people say, if I put my faith in Christ, I'll be born again. That's like a dead person thinking, if he could think, if I could, somebody would just give me a shovel, I'll get out of this, this hole in the ground that I'm in. Nobody does that. They can't. They're, they're dead. You can't even want to be a Christian until Jesus changes your heart. And once he does, then you put your faith in him. In other words, regeneration, being born again, precedes faith. It doesn't depend on faith. Regeneration first. God gives us a new heart, and then we believe. That's what happened to Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Paul preached, and it says that Lydia, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. He opened her heart, and she began to take seriously the things that were being preached by the Apostle Paul. No one can bring himself to spiritual life, including you and me. We didn't seek the Lord. The Lord sought us, and then we sought the Lord. <laughs> That's the way we need to understand it. That's the way the Bible makes, uh, describes it. No one can bring himself to spiritual life, but God can. And God does bring people to spiritual life. He may be awakening your heart this morning for the first time. 
you may find yourself beginning to ask really important questions. Like, is God really there? What is my status in connection with God? What do I have to do with him? And how can I know God? How can I know that if I die, I'm going to heaven? And you start asking yourself questions like that seriously for the first time, God is stirring your heart and you need to keep seeking the Lord. God gave us new life. Second thing I want you to note, God guarantees this new life. He guarantees this new life. Look at verse four. <clears throat> and on into verse five. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Well, let's just stop right there. Look especially at verse four. He gives us here the promise of an inheritance. An inheritance. I've heard a lot of stories about people who claim an inheritance. A lot of fights have been fought over who is the rightful recipient of an inheritance. When someone typically in the, in the family, if someone dies, like the, the uh, father of a family, a patriarch uh, who has children and maybe grandchildren, maybe great-grandchildren, made out a will, and when that will is read, the earthly possessions of that father are divided up or passed along to whoever the father wants to give it to. It depended on the death of the father for the inheritance to be claimed. Now for the Christian, we are promised, as Peter says here, an inheritance. You might be surprised at how many times the Bible talks about inheritance. In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, Israel was promised a land, a country, a nation, the nation that lived, that was in the land of Canaan. That was the promised land that would be the inheritance of the people of God, the Israelites. And that was a, a sort of precursor to our ultimate inheritance, our inheritance from God. God is promising you and me an inheritance. Think about that. An inheritance that depends on the death of another. Someone that we have a connection with. If we're Christians, it is the death of Christ for us that is the basis for our being able to, to have this promise of an inheritance. But even more directly, it's your death that must take place, your physical death, in order to receive the promised inheritance that God is talking about in his word. Now that can raise some questions. First of all, how can we be certain of this inheritance? Think about how somebody might inherit a pretty substantial estate. It could include 
a building like a home. It could include money in the bank, uh, stocks, you know, whatever it, it might consist of. But if you were to receive those as an inheritance, it would be a blessing, wouldn't it? But would those things last? Look at what Peter is saying here. He uses three really important words in verse 5 to describe this. Excuse me, verse 4. To an inheritance that, and here's the three words, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable. Perishable foods are foods that we usually have to refrigerate. And if we don't, yuck. You know, they turn brown. You know, they, they begin looking bad and start smelling bad eventually. And you're not really inclined to eat those, right? <laughs> Hope not. Imperishable. God has promised you an inheritance that will never perish. And then the second word he gives, undefiled. It's perfectly pure. There's no impurity in your inheritance. In an earthly sense, if you received an inheritance and some of it consisted of dirty money, you know, money that had been stolen, laundered or something, that means that it was dirty money. Can't happen with the inheritance God is talking about. It's undefiled. There's nothing wrong with it. And so he gives it that second term, undefiled, and then the last one he gives is that it won't fade. In our uh, <clears throat> automobiles and things like that, sometimes we have to do things to deal with fading. And then there's us. We start fading too. But here we're told it will never fade. Whatever this inheritance is, it's not going to fade. And all three words together help us realize it's going to last and it's going to be as glorious when we claim it as it was when it was promised to us. It's always going to be ours. Now, name one thing that you have that you can say all three of those things about. Everything we have is destined to perish. I get amused at uh, people who find these old classic cars in a barn, you know, and, and maybe they're covered up and they, they uh, get everything off of it and they look at it and it looks bad. Rusted out, hollow, nothing really there to be impressed with. And then whoever finds that takes it and fixes it, repaints it, does all these things to it and makes it look beautiful. And when you saw the before and the after, you'd be amazed. Well, there's a before and after with you and me. God takes old broken down sinners like us and he makes us into something that shines. And as we know Christ and we come to know him more and we become more like him, we become more holy, we become more and more beautiful in the eyes of God. 
And when we get to heaven, that's when the beautification process will be complete. We will be holy, 100% pure when we claim our inheritance. You know what our inheritance is? Our inheritance is not something, simply something like, oh, he, we're, we're all going to have 40 acres. <laughs> well, that may be true for all I know. The Bible doesn't really dwell on that much. But the one thing that's the most important thing to all to us or should be, our inheritance will include and supremely be a, in, uh, over everything God himself. You will inherit God himself, the God you have hungered to know better, the God you've got a long list of questions for, the God you have trusted in. Faith will give way to sight, and you will find total and, and complete satisfaction in God himself. We are struggling to do that now, aren't we? We, are, we love getting to say, I know, I truly know God now because Jesus has redeemed me and I have a relationship with God now and I'm getting to know him and understand him better. But there's a limit to what I can know here in this world. The more I know, the better it is, but the best is yet to come. Yes, our inheritance may well include other physical things. We're going to be living in perfected bodies in the new heaven and the new earth, but we are going to have God. All of God will be for all of us and each of us. That's the beauty of our inheritance. It's really going to be yours. Peter is trying to emphasize that here. Jesus did give us a little hint in Matthew 5 verse 5 when he says that we are going to inherit the earth. We're going to inherit the earth. The new heavens and the new earth will be, will be occupied forever by all the people of God worldwide. And so since all believers in Christ are promised this incredible inheritance, should we not live in such a way that we place less and less emphasis on our temporary treasures here on earth and instead find our joy in the treasures that are laid up for us in heaven. That's why we can rejoice in the midst of our trials. Our real treasures are in heaven. We do have things that we can enjoy now, but it's limited. So we have to always remember that. Alistair Begg said, and this, this will get your attention. He says, one day, one day you and I are going to be very, very rich. Very, very rich. And I, this, I'm not preaching a, a wealth and health gospel here. I'm not saying that in this life you're going to be monetarily very, very rich. I trust we all understand that. God will supply all our needs, but he's not promising to make us all very, very rich. Yet, it's coming in a glorious and wonderful way. It's coming. Last thing to note, God preserves this new life. He gives us this new life, yes, and we are very thankful for it. He guarantees this new life. That's the language that we've seen there in verse 4. But if you look at verse 5, 
he goes on to tell us how God is going to preserve us. You see, the question is, okay, God promises something for me, but how do I know that I'm going to get to, get to heaven? How do I know that I'm going to last in this life as a believer in Jesus? Maybe I'll turn away from the faith. We hear about people that do that. Maybe I'll turn away from the faith before I die and I won't be able to have that inheritance that Peter is talking about. Well, I think this next verse here tells us the answer to that. Verse uh, five. Verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How am I going to make it? By the power of God. God is going to provide you the ability, the strength to persevere in this life by faith, continuing to trust God and live out your dependence on God day by day by day all the way through your life. And so he's saying that God is going to preserve us. He's going to make sure that we make it. Jesus says, my sheep will never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. John 10. Paul promised in Philippians 1 verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Same thing Peter's talking about here when he talks about uh, revealed, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When he says that, uh, he's, he uses the word salvation and, and don't think that he's saying, oh, you're not going to be saved till you get to heaven. He's just using salvation in the fullest sense. There's a sense in which we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. All those things happen to all true believers in Christ. We have to claim this promise and apply it to ourselves. This inheritance may be waiting for me in heaven, but the question would be, will I make it to heaven? I love the story that R.C. Sproul tells about uh, his two grandsons who were having an argument. And one of the grandsons turned to R.C. Sproul and, and said, uh, uh, why don't you just cut him out of your will? And uh, he says, I've already made my will and you're not in it. <laughs> I don't know how long he waited before he told him he was kidding, uh, but he got his attention for sure. God has already made his will, if you want to put it that way. He's already worked out what our inheritance is. And it will be there, but so will we be there when we go from this world to the next. God will preserve you by his power, by his divine protection. One writer called it God's protective custody. You are under protective custody, guaranteed. If you're a believer in Jesus today, you are promised that you will make it to heaven. Now, there are times when we really aren't sure, are we? Usually it's times when we've been sinning more and haven't been praying and seeking the Lord like we should. So we need to keep that before us as well. 
Notice that God provides this heavenly protection through faith. By faith, this is going to take place, not because of our faith, but our faith still needs to be active. We need to work out our salvation, even as God is working salvation in us, as Philippians 2 tells us. Now, Peter is writing to Christians who are facing hard times due to their faith in Christ. He begins this section, verse 3, by praising God. Why can you praise God even though life is hard and maybe getting harder? Just because of your fidelity to Christ. Verses 3 through 5 provide the first of, as I said, three reasons why you and I can praise God. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the other two are yet. You'll have to come back to find out. Next week, we'll look at the second one. But it's because of Christ's saving work on our behalf that we can rest assured. We have been born again to a living hope. Hope is confidence and certainty about God's promises for the future. We have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God promises each believer an eternal inheritance which they will be able to claim in glory one day. In the meantime, however, God will keep us in his safekeeping until that day when the end of our days on earth will become the beginning of our never-ending life in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the wonderful promises that we are given in your word, including the promise of an inheritance, not that we are thinking of material things so much, but inheritance that's perfectly designed for us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us especially to look forward to the day when we shall see Christ face to face and we will know you even as you know us. May that promise set, be set before our spiritual eyes day by day so that we will keep our perspective on the things of this world and this life. Help us to have joy, even in the midst of trials, because of your faithfulness and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.